New protected areas, lawsuits, migrating jaguars, and insect population explosions. Conservation can be full of drama, excitement, and crazy natural phenomena. What better way to discuss top conservation headlines than with a close friend over tasty drinks? Welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I am your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today's episode is the second conversation in the Nature Happy Hour mini-series, where I sit down with my good friend and fellow conservation scientist, Charles Von Rees, PhD, for happy hour drinks, updates from our sides of the conservation world, and explorations of a pre-selected topic. <laughs> for this conversation, Charles and I chose to discuss top conservation stories as a spin on my Into the Headlines solo episodes. In true happy hour fashion, Charles and I begin the conversation by catching up on everything that's happened since we last sat down in October, including Rewildology's third birthday, volunteer opportunities with the show, and news from Charles' work in Nature-Based Solutions. Following, we dive into three conservation headlines, the saga of jaguars in the U.S., the first indigenous marine stewardship area in America, and the upcoming cicada population explosion. If you'd like to skip our opening banter and head straight to the top headlines, fast forward to around the 30-ish minute mark, and don't worry, we won't be offended if you do. Also, if you're interested in applying for one of Rewildology's open volunteer positions, please check out the link in the episode description or navigate to the website and click on Volunteer Opportunities under the About tab. Before I let you go, please remember to rate and review the show wherever you are listening to this episode, following the show on your favorite social media platform, subscribing to Rewildology's YouTube channel, purchasing a piece of swag, and or signing up for the newsletter. All right, Rewildologists, please enjoy this laid-back nature happy hour with me and Charles. Oh, what's wrong with my t-shirt, though? I'm just saying I wish I had a branded t-shirt. I'm I'm jealous. If I had, if I had, especially, is that a, that's a whole new design, right? Are you, are you... Uh, this is a secret one I, that I have on. I guess it's not very secret if I'm wearing it. Well, though, right? so that was my next question. Um, if are you just going for it? You're just gonna wear your secret stuff to your podcast uh, now? Yeah, I probably should have thought that through. Um, <laughs> so no, what they are is so I have. Okay, so do you remember my Rhino campaign that I did World Rhino Day? God, that was two World Rhino days ago. Um, <laughs> is that how you measure your time? Time is elapsing me. <laughs> and I had these really, really cool design shirts, and it was this a wonderful campaign. And so I would love to do more of those and have them themed. And I got the first T-shirt sample of the first one that I'll more than likely do, which is this amazing lion. Okay. Um, Am I correct that the lion is wearing glasses? It is. Do you see? We're so branded. <laughs> so is it okay well so that was that was always my question about the about the, the it's a lynx right or a bobcat 
It's a lynx. Close. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like the lynx is you, right? Um, it, with the glasses it into me. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so the glasses were yeah. really just always like a, a vague brook tag, but now it's, now that's become a persona. But then the lion. Yeah, so all the ones um, that I will be eventually launching when I have time for all the things mm. will there. There's a lot of okay. I guess I'm just gonna do some spoilers. So oh man, there's a polar bear one. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. There is I, a wolf. I walked her right into it. <laughs> you did. There's a wolf. There's another rhino. There's this lion. Um, wow. Oh my god, a koala. I did a koala. I designed like literally ten different designs. Yeah. And then um, decide when and how to launch them. And I love this lion one so much that I went ahead and got it printed. It's I don't know. It's super impressive. And and you know the 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 comment that got that started all this. If I had a shirt that was that cool with my logo on it, I would be wearing it right now. I think I think that that Gulo in Nature swag is a long way out at this point, but someday. Well, the beautiful thing is you can get it printed on any time and be swagged out at any time. You are right. You are right. Mm-hmm. No excuses, Charles. Oh, oh, I've got so many. I've got so many excuses. Fuck, you have no idea. <laughs> I'm the ultimate, like, no bullshit person, though, so. I I respect it. I <laughs> Try giving me your excuses, and I will rebuttal okay. every single one. Then I'm, I'll, I'll just divert you to some other topic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, and I'd be like, Charles, I know what you're doing. I, yeah, there's a really good word for it that I'm forgetting at the moment. But there's, you know, you just need you need the art of distraction. When it when it's getting mm. when it's getting untenable and none of your excuses are working, you, you know, pocket sand something, something quick. <laughs> you look so spiffy. Thank you, thank you. I yeah. I wish my logo was on everything. And your button but. up and your shark is that a. Sh- I can't tell what's behind you. What are is those different types of bass or what, freshwater fresh uh, Montana fish species? Sorry, Montana fish species of special concern. Um, I picked it up oh. when I was working in Montana. It's just a bunch of cool endangered fish. <laughs> it, it is cool. Yeah, I have actually. I have a really nice one here of um, southeastern crayfish, like all sorts of crayfish species. Oh. Because this is one of the one of the epicenters for crayfish diversity down here, um, I just haven't put it up yet. But I figure maybe just you know, right underneath. Yeah, that looks super freaking. I cool. just love those kind of posters, just straight up biodiversity posters. It's like here's all the species of such and such. You know, some some connection between them. <laughs> I'm a huge sucker for those. You can't really see it. I have a Hawaiian waterbird one over in the corner, um, mm. and it makes me very Speaking happy. Speaking to your heart. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, those yeah. those guys really, they have a special place for me. Um, so this is a happy hour, Chad. Mm-hmm. Do you have a happy hour drink? Or I know you just had to literally, like, drive <sighs> across town furiously to record since your neighbor had their TV up. <laughs> so does that mean I am partaking alone? No. Or were you able No, no, to you, are, you are not. I, I went and, and picked up a, a couple cold ones on the way in. So. Yay! What? <laughs> Okay, what do you have? This is a, um, it's called Los Bravos. It's a, it's another Terrapin. I promise I'm not like getting sponsored by Terrapin. They just, I'm in, live in, I live in Georgia, so they're everywhere. Um, but this one I tried uh, over the summer and really liked it. But it's a, um, 
sort of Mexican style lager thing. I'm sure you've run into that before, but you know, a lot of, a lot of Central American countries have these really excellent, um, just very light, easy mm-hmm. lager beers that are so good in that sort of weather. Um, I always think of the one in Costa Rica. There's a really famous one in Costa Rica called Imperial. It's just like, yeah, it's you know, it's not it's not fancy, it's not hoppy or whatever, but it's just a nice, stay cool, hot weather, easy thing. So I'm a fan of those. Yeah, after being in the field all day and everyone just wants to take a load off. Like, yeah, and beer. that's right, that's mm-hmm. right. I I gotta start getting ready for that. <laughs> that's that's one of my. I don't remember if we talked about that in the last happy hour, but. Um, yeah, I'm pretty locked in to be um, co-teaching a study abroad course here at UGA. Um, oh, you didn't spring. bring that up. In oh, the okay. Last episode. Yeah, so that's gonna be that's gonna be my. What's the topic? Um, it is tropical ecology and natural history. Um, oh, so we cool. kind of have a we have kind of a, a a lot of different kinds of students on the trip, which is I think intentional. Um, but it's not just ecology you know, and biology students, so this folks from other majors as well. So for some people, it's going to be a bit of a crash course in, you know, how do you, how do you study nature? Uh, and for the more ecology people, I think for them, it's going to be learning what's different about tropical environments, maybe what's different about field work and tropical environments. Um, and then I would say for everybody, there's going to be a lot of, you know, you just got to learn your species, right? Like, I think people dwell so much on, you know, theory and concepts nowadays, which are really valuable, but it's also like, there's something to be said for just being able to go somewhere and being like, yeah, I know whatever the four monkeys are that live here. I know that whatever. Um, So we also just want to give people a taste for, you know, the variety that's out there, um, not only of habitats, but of the, you know, bajillions of things that live in them in the tropics. So, uh, so that'll be that. Um, And that'll be, I don't know maybe my seventh or eighth time in the country. So be really excited to, to go back there, hopefully see a couple friends too. Good time. Oh, that'll be so fun. Yeah. When, when will you be there? That is gonna be the lion's share of May and maybe the first week of June, something like that. It's it's almost a month course. So it's maybe mid, early wow. mid-May that we leave. Yeah, so it's, it's very intensive because um, it's like, it's essentially like taking a class for a semester, except you take one class and it's for three and a half weeks, super intense, you know. Um, in the field. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's big time in the field. It, it seems a little bit more cushy than um, some of the ones that I did as a graduate student. Um, you know, I, I mm-hmm. we had places where we would be. Funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I can remember camping in the tropics and stuff, which is a very different experience, mm. um, you know, and and cold showers if there are showers and things like that, where it seems like we're going to be going to some fancier, more modern field stations. And, you know, I, yeah, which I think that those sort of more brutal experiences, uh, those are only for the people who are signing up for that, you know, and I don't think I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to put these students through that. So... <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yeah, I have today a blackberry gin and tonic. Man, was my trick of choice. So fancy every time. <laughs> I don't even remember what I had. Did I just have wine last time? I don't remember. I uh, wow, that's terrible. I don't Are remember. I no, I think there was something maybe I involving remember. seltzer. It's not terrible that you don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I just it's so much. <laughs> 
it's so fancy that I figured I would. There was, I mean, there was something interesting. I'm, anyway, it's fine. I don't although, although you should maybe make a log, you know, you could have like a rewildology, like mix menu. Cocktail or, recipe book? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. It's just like a, <laughs> or like a, I don't Mixology know. Mixology book? Yeah, a calendar of, of yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some nice portmanteau of the two ologies now, but that's, it's too much for me. <laughs> so, that's like a mouthful. Yeah. Real. Remix Wildology? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there, though. That was nice. That was nice. Okay, we'll come back to that. We'll let that one stew, <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll get back to it. Um, okay, so I, I, it sounds like we are spontaneously covering covering some um, some news and updates now. What what else What else is going on on your end? Um, so exciting things. Rewildology is officially three years old. Oh, wow. Which is mind-blowing that this show has been on the airwaves now for three years. I started this thing in, I started the process of building what is now the show in like October-ish of 2020, and then officially launched on January 26th, 2021. Jeez. And today is... January 30th of 2024. <laughs> so, Crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. This will be the 158th episode. Oh my goodness. That's nothing mm-hmm. to sneeze at. I mean, you're, you you <laughs> your productivity astounds me. It is it is so impressive. And then being able to stick with it at that pace too. Because I mean, I really wonder, and I'm sure there are statistics somewhere. I really want to know what the, um, I don't know if this is the right word, the sort of attrition rate has been of pandemic podcasts. Because you know that everybody and their mm, mom was starting mm-hmm. a podcast at that time. But like how many people actually stuck with it, right? And yeah. are still around today. I question. really, I would guess, I would guess under 10%, maybe less. That's my, that's my. I mean, probably, yeah. Because, um like one of the statistics I heard, like when I started the show, that if a show makes it to ten episodes, like, like that's like the big cutoff. Ten. Like, it's very rare that if if a show makes it past ten episodes, then it'll probably do a little, you know, like a little further. But that seems to be the big cutoff for people when they're like, oh, okay, no, never mind, can't do this. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Ten. And but you're right. I wonder what the statistics are now post-COVID, when we were all home, had nothing better to do. Yeah. Like, this was my outlet for creating impact since I lost so much at that time. And, yeah, and I, it's still going, and even significantly more big and exciting things to come. Even more exciting than swag shirts and <sighs> campaigns. That's a tough one to top, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, yeah, this one is going to be a top. Okay. But Are you going to tell me this one? Or I, is can't, this, okay. I can't announce right, it yet. I can't announce this one yet. Listeners, I'm sorry. I tried. Mm-hmm. I should have asked the question but like two drinks note, from now, but that's my fault. Yeah, that's actually that's true. That's bad strategy. But then I would just have to, I would probably just have to cut it. Oh, shoot. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'd have to do that and then offer to edit the episode. <laughs> but the other exciting thing is, um, speaking of the show being on the airwaves for three years, I am recruiting a team to start helping with the show. So I officially yesterday posted volunteer positions if anybody wants to come be a part of Rewildology. Uh, so 
obviously there's no money or anything that I can offer yet to come along with it, but a ton of one-on-one coaching. I want to build a whole team around this amazing thing. Mm -hmm. Like anybody who's like in science communication or conservation communication, like, um, for social media type stuff or like media relations. And, and I was reflecting on it a lot more because I was so against it for a while, even though I was drowning in work, it's like, I decided to do this because it was out of my passion. Mm-hmm. And now that I've posted the position and gotten an overwhelmingly positive response, yeah. I was, I've been, I've been blown away, honestly, by the, by the response I've gotten of how many people just want to help and like be a part of this movement yeah. that is rewatology. It's like, it's like moving me a lot. And, um, I mean, and a lot of the people that are reply are, are applying so far are like, you know, they're like, we believe in this. We want to offer our talents to this movement, That's huge. to what's going on. And so, and I'm just like, ah, <laughs> but the deadline isn't for another two weeks. So um, February 19th is when I'm going to cut it off and start doing interviews and all that stuff. So we're recording this a couple of days before it'll drop. So people, you still have time, like, please put your name in the hat if you want to be part of social media or if you love audio engineering or anything like that there's a four different areas and that i'm looking for but we'll see who eventually comes on the team and then maybe shape what they do accordingly Mm -hmm. so like a social media team media relations team a podcast editing team and then a science research like person and or team Mm. all of these will either be a person or a couple um so all of us coming together to yeah, essentially just do this show, like do this show in a way that's super impactful and reaches the most amount of people possible. Um, Cause at the end of the day, it's these amazing guests that, you know, that come on and are spreading their amazing knowledge and these organizations that are coming on, like how far can we get their message out? Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, that's really exciting. That's huge. I can't believe I finally did it. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I, uh, as someone who's very much kind of, you know, day to day in in the conservation process and and you know action world a lot um there's so much need for what you're doing you know what the what the mission of rewildology is it's it's such a big missing component you know um and and so i'm I'm really i'm really grateful to see it and i'm grateful for what for what you and your future team are are going to be doing you know and it's exciting to see that to see that grow and it doesn't surprise me, you know, that there are people who are who are that that interested and in, and in, and sold on the concept, you know. I mean, it, first of all, you you just, I mean, the podcast is great, and and it's really you you, you do such a good <laughs> job of of making it have a brand and bringing you know this really quality content and the people, okay. Present company, obviously not part of this statement, but. But like you bring on these amazing, you know, frontline conservation people and, and and tell these stories and and um it it covers so many important and real topics in in such a relatable way. And I don't think I've come across any conservation themed podcasts that really do that effectively in my mind. Um you know working on working on the nature guys which i absolutely love is a very different thing it's not it's not a conservation yeah, podcast it's totally different. um you know and i value that mission a lot it's similar to the mission of of my blog um 
and and I think these those are those are both very important things, but they're different things. Uh, and I, I think that communicating about conservation uh, the way that you do is really hard. Um, and so I, I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to turn this into like a whole like promo for rewildology, but I think I think that what you do is extremely difficult. And you know, as a as a conservation scientist, you know, working at multiple sides of this field all the time, sometimes very much up at the front, you know, helping people make big decisions and things. The 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 stuff you're doing, I think, makes a gigantic difference, and I'm so excited to see it grow. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Charles. That was going to go on for too long, but I think it's great, and everybody yeah. <laughs> everybody should send in applications. That's super exciting. Yeah, and everybody, please, like, if you, it, it's it's open, um, and, and like I said, maybe one day it'll turn into a paid thing, if if as this grows and as my timeline fulfills, we'll see. I mean, you know, whoever. The, the team is that is along for the ride. We'll see what it turns into, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I I mean, I am so disciplined and I do have this bigger vision, but I will be completely honest that I'm like half winging it every single day. So <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm working on these really big things, but at the same time, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll just see what happens. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's <laughs> typical, you know? I think yeah. a lot of time having it, yeah. having it together is, home. yeah, always somewhat of an illusion, you know? It's just different degrees. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm like so skeptical, not in a bad way of just like every time I see these amazing presentations or like all this stuff where all the people have it so together and I'm like, I know better. I know better. You're like, you're like, it's it's an incredible facade Mm. that we're all putting out. Like, we know what we're talking about. We have our shit together. (laughs) And I was like, no, you don't. I know you don't because I don't like, and I'm proud of what I've done so far. Yeah. But I don't. You're fooling all of us. to say it i know you know? i know i know i respect that say i respect that yeah as yeah i'm not trying to create an illusion i want people to feel invited and welcome as we're like going through this journey together because if we had the solutions and the answer well all of our problems would be gone and we would be doing something else mm-hmm. who knows i would be what else would i be doing if i what else would i you'd probably be I enjoying nature without worrying about saving it Right? You, you, right? You'd be going and looking <laughs> at stuff and being like, isn't it great that we have so many rhinos? Yeah, yeah that's true. I guess I would just be a perf- like a full-time guide yeah. or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I would be doing 100%, you know, but so- somebody's got to do some of this work. So for me, it ended up being, right. you know, a full-time career. And that's that. Okay, that's big news. I, I'm not asking you to top that, mm-hmm. but was there anything else that you had for, um, for updates? Let me look at my list because well, you know I have lists. When did we do nope. this last um, episode? Was that October? Colors in nature. Yeah, but when was it? And you told me not to make a list. List of what? Um, and I made a list. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, you're right. You're right. Agreed yep. to not make a list. <laughs> not prep. Yeah, and I yeah, yeah, yeah. Myself, and I did. Well, that's yeah, a little foreshadowing for tonight, right? <laughs> just saying that is foreshadowing for the rest of the episode. yeah when we get into the meat and potatoes the- today hey but that was accidental uh-huh. because i got so interested in the topic okay wait i digress okay anyways back to you we need updates from charles so when did we record i had my halloween nails <laughs> okay so <laughs> maybe november then like early november <laughs> 
Yeah, like late October, oh, okay. early November for context. Yeah. So these were these costume nails or were these in the spirit of Halloween? No, no, no. You commented on them. They I bet were I did. black and purple. Okay. Oh yeah, it does sound really cool. Okay. And I had a I had a black cat shirt on. Nice. <laughs> Uh, okay, so this could have been any like any time in October then, right? Because you, you strike me as someone who mm-hmm. just kind of gets in the Halloween spirit and then rolls with it. Yeah, of course. All right. Okay, respect. Um, <laughs> since October, um, yeah, a lot of, um, I mean, on, on kind of the, the boring academic side, um, a lot of um, expansion and, and, and growth in this, um, the sphere that I've been working in, right? So there's this kind of, big hubbub around nature-based solutions right now. It's becoming this big conservation frontier and it's growing so fast. And a lot of uh, countries and governments are, are kind of really subscribing to it now. And I've been working with a lot of my colleagues here for the last couple of years trying to talk about how to make, how to really put the nature in nature-based solutions and make sure that, that uh, when we are doing things like restoring and creating artificial ecosystems to protect people, which is what nature-based solutions do, that those things are also going to provide habitat for wildlife uh, and provide conservation benefits, ideally kind of strategic moves we can make, right, to protect things that we think are especially important. And yeah, we've just, we had a couple of our sort of major flagship papers come out uh, from a a nerdy academic perspective. Congrats! Thank you. Yeah, really, really exciting. And those are sort of setting the setting the tone for what we hope uh, the community will be doing into the future, and of course, what we're trying to do with our more in-depth research. So then, since then, I've just been kind of starting to spin up a lot of individual projects. So we had all these papers saying, like, you know, this is what we need to do, and, and we can always talk about that some other time. Um, and now we're trying to actually go do that stuff. So I, I applied for a, a big grant from NASA to do research using satellites and uh, field observations of biodiversity as well as recordings, um, audio recordings. And we're kind of spinning all that together into developing ways of predicting um, what what species will benefit from different restorations of floodplains out in the Missouri River because uh, the Army Corps of Engineers is trying to, to restore floodplains to protect people from future major floods from climate change, which is becoming a bigger and bigger issue over there. Uh, and so we're trying to help them also see, okay, if we're going to do this in these places, can we also use that to provide bat habitat, bird habitat, you know, uh, vegetative communities that are valuable um, or, or declining like uh, wet prairie and things like that. So um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of nerd babble, but a lot of exciting things I think happening. Um, on that front for me in terms of uh, yeah, research. Yeah, that grant from freaking NASA. Yeah, yeah. Were you hiring for a PhD? We're hiring, too? yeah. Like we we are hiring a postdoc, yeah. Yep, so that's a, a PhD-level scientist who would help us with uh, fancy technical analyses of satellite data <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited. Congrats, dude. Thanks. I know, I already said that, but, like, seriously, like, Pat yourself on the back. I know I've known you now for years, which is crazy to say. And mm. like to watch your career grow. I mean, we met you were still in Montana. Like, right. Right. Like that has now been two states ago. And like, <laughs> you know, just like a whole different place in your career. And like to see how far you've come as well. Like this is totally. so cool. Are you like becoming like the nature based solutions guy? Is that like your 
reputation that you're growing, uh, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. I think I, I, I'm definitely. People have already started to kind of reach out in ways that make me think, like, huh, they must have seen, you know, thought of my name when that came up. Um, so it it is starting mm-hmm. to happen a little bit, uh, and we'll see. We'll see how that how that changes over time. But it's exciting. Um, you know, I, I was always told by academic mentors of mine that like you have to figure out what like you have to be the guy or the gal or the person for something. You know, you have to be you have to have something that they associate your name with. Um, that's always like a, a sign that you know you're starting to develop a good kind of momentum academically and, and seeing that happen I'm sort of like oh wow yeah no I think I'm becoming the guy for that particular thing so it's cool well, there you go everybody yeah. you are watching yeah. an expert scientist like <laughs> blossom like how cool is this yeah, like that was fun um as we get into like the topic of today like some of the scientific papers that I was reading I recognize those names mm-hmm. and you know that and one of the big things about, you know, rewatology in the show is like there is a story behind every single person that is on a scientific paper. Who is that person and what is their story? And then some of these people, you know, have incredible careers and they've become like this known for this, you know, X, Y or Z. And for example, I've had on Stuart Breck, who is like one of the top conflict management with bears guys. Like wow. He's, it's like on so many different papers and he's just a normal guy, you know? Um, so just to watch your career and knowing that uh, as people come along the journey with you and as we still ha- you know, have more and more of these fun chats, they'll also get to see as you become the <laughs> nature-based solutions guy. <laughs> yeah. The MBS guy. That's right. That's right. I know we've got all of our cool uh, acronyms and everything. I had a real, a real brain twister of a moment. Uh, was it last week or the week before? I was talking to some some folks um, from the UN who work in Central and South America about how they use nature-based solutions for climate adaptation in places like Honduras and Argentina and Chile and things like that. It was a really fun conversation. It was all in Spanish, which is like, you know, I speak pretty good Spanish, but this was this was starting to push my capabilities. Um, but <laughs> You know they have a they they call it SBN and so I kept saying like NBS in Spanish and they were like what and I had to keep like remembering to flip it but anyway yeah it's um people love their acronyms there's a lot of that <laughs> so I I I wanna I wanna <laughs> I wanna get into the topic that you couldn't stop researching um, well, actually, no. We should we should talk about what uh, we're doing tonight, right? Because we're 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 trying to be a little bit more organized than than the sort of ridiculous chatting that we're already doing right now. But we're trying to have a theme every time we do <laughs> one of these happy hours. No, I think we're doing great. Yes. We're one and a half episodes in, and we <laughs> we've had themes. <laughs> yes, yeah. So the theme of today, I don't text Charles. I was like, I would love to do another episode, and. One of the things I haven't done one into in a while, and it was called Into the Headlines. These like I, they were solo episodes at the time, and what I did is these I, I would like bookmark these headlines that really piqued my interest for one one form or another, whatever it would be. Yeah. Like one of my last ones, um, I actually phoned an expert, and it was when Utah overrode the um, mountain lion laws, hunting laws in the state. So I phoned a friend immediately and like had somebody on the show like to talk about this. Um, all of the COP conferences, 
all of them, like and the big cat safety act. So like these headlines that are really important in our world, I would do deep dives and do solo episodes. Well, solo episodes are fun, but they're not near as fun. And to, when unless you do it with a friend, sure. like doing these episodes with a friend are is a million times more fun. And so I was like, Charles, go through the news and pick just some of your favorite headlines. Like, what is it that's going on that really piques your interest? And luckily, hopefully everyone listening can tell that we are in slightly different areas of the field. So I knew the headlines you would mm. find would be way different mm-hmm. than the ones that I would find. And you would teach me something and I would teach you something. Totally. Um, so yeah. yeah, that was my idea for the day. So like top headlines that we found interesting. <laughs> what did, wait, what did you call it though? That was such a cool title. I love that like totally. Into the headlines. Into the headlines. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I, that's what I called them. Yeah. I think I did like three or four of those episodes. Um, and this is kind of based on that same concept. Is, is what I was going for. I love those episodes. They, you know, they did well, um, and they were just interesting because I didn't know what I would be researching, yeah. or, or you know, but it would be really important stuff. And I would always try to take a double-sided view, like because you know we're always going to have biases and everything like that. But I would always try to find what is the opposite view of whatever is happening mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and like take not multiple. try to frame it from one perspective. Totally. And so that's how I approach those episodes. And so yeah. that is the topic or the theme right well and now you've already got two perspectives right here so we're already starting you know (laughs) with two different people yeah it'll be interesting cool so my topic today uh was originally i gotta pull all my notes i have oh my gosh charles i have one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve no 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 15 16 17 (laughs) i have 17 tabs up you gotta, you gotta calm it down. <laughs> this is just like this, all of our conversations. Like, oh, like, keep it spontaneous. We'll be so chill about it. <laughs> Brooke's like, well, I have three outlines, and I ordered them by priority. Yeah. Okay, seventeen yeah. tabs. Okay, so, 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 okay, so, okay. How this happened is there was a, a news piece that I had saved that I really wanted to talk about because it was just really good, heartfelt news. And I love good, heartfelt news because mm-hmm. we don't get it that often yeah. in our field. Mm. And I don't know if you saw, but last September, the Center for Biological Diversity announced that two new jaguars had been spotted in the United States. And I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. I want to talk about that. You know, like everybody, if you didn't know, last March and May, two male jaguars were found on... Um, camera traps placed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service mm. in Arizona. I think it was Arizona. Oh, wow. It was in New Mexico. Okay. Oh. Um, and so, huh. like, this is this is fantastic news, okay? Like, okay, like, they're they're coming up here. I'm like, you know, I would love to say, you know, like, hey, Charles, did you see that? Um, and then I started to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I assume there's, there's a lot the going States. on here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to pull up my notes here because uh, it required that. All right. Because like the dates and the years and the times and all that stuff. So do you, before I start, Charles, do you have like any background knowledge of jaguars in the United States? Kind of. And I'm really glad you asked that because I I was just about to ask if we could cover a few basics for for listeners and for me. But my, my vague understanding is that the, we are, you know, the southwestern United States 
what is now the United States, essentially used to be the northernmost portion of the jaguar's range. And then their range has been, which, you know, like any species does when their populations decline, their range has been contracting. Um, And so they're no longer found in in the contiguous U.S. the way they used to be. But now we occasionally get these kind of, these little exploratory, probably usually males, right? Because they're the ones wandering around. Mm -hmm. Um, But so we get the occasional you know, one kind of coming up from Mexico every now and then, right? Dispersing male, <laughs> as it's called in the cat world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you're spot on. Um, so the Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico in Louisiana used to be the northernmost range of jaguar habitat. They were originally across 21 countries, and they're now found in 19. Um, and what happened is it's the same story as happened in all American predators. So they used to, like I said, they used to freely roam um, in pristine habitat. If you think of like Mexico, like that, that's some similar ecosystem to what's in like New Mexico, Texas, and Arizona. That used to be their hot spot. So they were, in, they were, in, the they were in arid environments because I always picture them as like yeah, a rainforest yeah, yeah. guy. Interesting. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, definitely. But there's like some like mountainous jungle pockets-ish huh. too. I wouldn't quite say jungle or anything like that. Forest. Um, but but these, these forested areas that they inhabited. Oh, wow. In. Um, but yeah, if you think of like Texas and Arizona and more of the mountainous regions, like that is where they used to be found. And uh, there in the 1800s, there's actually confirmed sightings of a jaguar as far as Long's Peak, Colorado. I know exactly where that is, having lived in Long's. Wow. Like, I lived at the base of Long's. Yeah. Um, and also Monterey, California. So... <laughs> Um, and these these were confirmed sightings. So um, who knows? They might have been dispersing males as well. Yeah. We don't know why they were there. That was outside of the normal realm. But those were confirmed sightings. Jeez. Um, and they used to be pretty abundant from all of the like like I said, confirmed sightings by European settlers and and also you know American ancestors, um, and then in Native American cultures. So like the Southern indigenous communities, they have a ton of you know, stories and art and literature, all of a spotted cat of, of the jaguar. So clearly they were here for a very long time. However, <laughs> as all predators, like I said, in the United States, in the 1800s, 1900s, they were the unfortunate victims oh. of the U.S. government and ranchers, rampage against predators, Mexican wolves, pumas. Um, <clears throat> wow. Pretty much all predators and jaguars, they were all fully extirpated. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, they were completely removed from their American habitat. So the last, um, by the 1960s, all of them were removed. Um, So the last confirmed female was shot in either 1963 or 1964. I saw two different quoting both of those years. So somewhere in that time window. Um, and obviously this has huge consequences if a species is going to repopulate on its own. Because if you don't have females, you obviously ain't making babies. Mm-hmm. So that was the last time a female was seen in the United States. Um, but in 1969, jaguar hunting was banned in important range states like Arizona. Wow. And then the Endangered Species Act passed in 1972. And the jaguars were put on oh, they were. the ESA wow. for in, as an endangered species. Okay. However, again, however, oh. 
1980, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, delisted jaguars <sighs> due to public objections, and obviously this blatantly went against the Endangered Species Act. So this went on for about a couple decades, and then in 1996, Warren Glenn, he was a rancher and a hunting guide from Douglas, Arizona, spotted the first male in the... Oh, God. <laughs> Peloncio Mountains. P-E-L-O-N-C-I-L-L-O. Yeah, Peloncio. I'm that's Spanish. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and he was a houndsman, so he actually pulled back his hounds, which is pretty cool, this Warner guy. He snapped some photos, and he just let the cat go away. So ever since that, and then that started this, like, oh, my God, like, jaguars are here. And actually, right after that, there was more cats that had been spotted in these very remote places where they were just not touched um that these cats were able to get into and then that re-sparked the interest in jaguars so then in 1997 the center for biological diversity started a campaign to have jaguars relisted oh, under the esa and they won and so jaguars were put back on the esa as endangered but then there was no plan put in place to recover them so, after that, the CBD took legal action and sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service three times to finally establish a recovery plan and denote critical jaguar habitat. And that all went down in 2018. Oh, wow. So, they sued multiple times yeah. across the years. And finally, in 2018, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced a recovery plan Jeez. with denotions of some habitat. So during all of this, I don't know, did you ever hear of the famous jaguar named El Jefe? That the does boss. sound familiar. Yeah. Did you, did you hear about him? I think I did. So so during all of this, so the CBD, you know, they were like watching all of this. Um, I also found this really cool map that I'll definitely have in the show notes. So there's an actual map um, that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has of the spots where jaguars have been spot on their cameras. And so I'll definitely have that map in the show notes because it's really cool to look through and you can see the details from the sightings and stuff. Anyways, so in 2011, El Jefe was first spotted in Arizona and he was tracked and followed by, this is, this is all observational data, um, until 2015. So he became very famous. Oh, wow. And he proved that jaguars could migrate here and live harmoniously on their own, not create any trouble, and just be a beautiful, magnificent cat as they are. Um, he randomly disappeared in 2015 hmm. um, and was presumed dead because, you know, big cats, they, you know, he disappeared. And so we thought, but he magically reappeared in 2022 on a camera track. No way. And so... I read, I read all kinds of different reports. They're like, well, no, what happened to El Jefe? You know, how did he come back? And uh, it was actually a lot of articles speculated that it was the border wall that got him stuck in Mexico and then he couldn't come up. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, he is an independent cat. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe it had something to do with that. Maybe it didn't. But as of now, he's still alive and he was born in 2010. So he, and from all reports, he's still a beautiful looking cat. Wow. So that is actually a really old Jaguar. Yeah. So he's doing really I was going to ask, so they, they identify um, him by his by his spot pattern. That's how they could tell it was him. Oh, yes. Thank you for asking that. Um, yeah. So uh, all cats, similar to our fingerprints, their spot patterns are individual to each cat. 
So um, I actually am in my professional job as the director of conservation. I'm working with my biology team in Tanzania at our, our camps to run an AI database of the cats that are around our camps that are in the Serengeti. And then we'll branch to some of our other cats where we're using AI. And that's how AI works. It uses machine learning and all these magic guru stuff behind the scenes that I don't know what it does. But it learns the spot patterns of individual cats and with insane accuracy can tell who a cat is. So that is how they've been able to tell that the two cats spotted last year were brand new males never before seen in the database. Wow. Because it didn't match anything that had previously been seen. Mm -hmm. So that's super exciting. Two new cats. And that's also how they were able to show that El Jefe was El Jefe. Got it. He's a, <laughs> because it was the same cat with this paw pattern. Yeah, he's a good-looking dude. I'm looking up some pictures of yeah, him now. Yeah, isn't he beautiful? Big guy. Wow. Um, yeah, he's yeah, he's huge. Not near as big as the ones I saw in the Pantanal, but those are the biggest jaguars in the world. Oh, that checks that's out. Good. That's mm. that's a lot of food mm -hmm. in the world's biggest mm -hmm. wetland. I mean, that, that'll do it. Um, it looks yeah. like he had a predecessor named Macho B. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. so Macho B was the last like known jaguar before El Jefe. Right, okay. So these jaguars became really, really famous. There was Macho A, who was, from what I read, um, and I do need to do more research, just make sure, like, the, the timeline of this. I'm pretty sure Macho A was the first one that was spotted, and there was Macho B, um, and then El Jefe. So these three famous, they were all male, and like, obvious, not unfortunately, just there was no female. Yeah. So, again, a population can't reestablish. Um, so then after that, that is when my end, my notes end, um, and I have to go to all of oh. my tabs here. Well, um, I have a question, so, if you don't mind, before we get, okay, yeah, I don't, okay, I don't, yes. I don't want to distract you yes, too please. long, but I do have, I do have some questions here. I'm thinking yes. just from a, from a conservation standpoint, what does a conservation plan look like when you are in a country that is just the tiniest, tiniest tail end of a species range? And, you know, no one's reported them breeding here since ever since or whatever, you know, and all we have is the occasional bachelor moving through. Like, how do we define what a conservation goal is for them in the U.S.? Yeah. And so from what I was um, able to read, so this kind of goes on the next point. So I haven't been able to fully read the paper um, but in what year was this? Two, 2021, these, this group of very famous, um, knowledgeable researchers came together and they published this paper called A Systematic Review of Potential Habitat Suitability for the Jaguar in Central Arizona and New Mexico. Oh, cool. So they took the jaguar like reintroduction or like the jaguar plan because it isn't a reintroduction reintroduction plan i want to clarify that this jaguar like coming back to plan um and they and they pretty much like you know actually upon review because from that plan from what i read it denoted like this amount of space that was suitable for six jaguars that's it got it that is not a sustainable population sure um, and so these scientists, they were like, actually, if we look at, and again, I have not had a chance to read the paper because the next part of this conversation that got me so deep into this literally dropped yesterday, Whoa. like less than 24 hours ago. 
Um, and that is how I got so deep in this. Okay. And I have not had a chance to read everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so with that science in mind, the CBD did a 116-page petition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And from what I understand, they actually petitioned, I don't know if it was from the scientists or, or I have to read all these things, like around 2 million acres of suitable habitat Jeez. for the jaguars as it currently stands. Like, I don't think that that's including, um, I think, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say anything without being 100% certain, but I didn't see any specific, like, remarks about private lands. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't see, like... In addition to that, might be in there, but I I don't I don't I didn't see that right off the bat that they were specifically talking about um, private lands. Mm -hmm. I think these are public lands, and they denoted at least two million acres, which would house ninety to one hundred and fifty jaguars, oh, wow. which would then be a sustainable population. Yeah, and I'm assuming they don't like. I don't. I imagine that our goal is not to have like our own independent breeding population of jaguars, right? Like. We probably want them to be connected to all the other populations going further south. Right? Yeah, and that's one of the big things, and that's one of the the big things that they're talking about because the population in Mexico is apparently getting pretty isolated. Oh. And so uh, some of the big initiatives is like this, like jaguar cor uh, corridor mm -hmm. to help, like um, to connect all of the home ranges together so that they can be more mixing. Uh, so that is like one of the big, and, and also too, they used to be here. Like this used to be their For home sure. and we killed them. We pushed them out. So um, I don't know more from that perspective, like other than they used to be here and we should bring them back. If there's anything more than that, I don't, I don't really know because mm -hmm. you know, me um, working in conservation tourism and my mind immediately goes to that. Like, can you imagine if we had if you could go to Arizona and like through a scope, see a freaking jaguar. Yeah, yeah. Like you wouldn't have to hop on a plane with me to Pensacola. <laughs> right. We could go to freaking Arizona. Right, right. Like imagine just like the the opportunities for ranchers that have all of these massive ranches and like if they knew that they had a famous jaguar, that this was their home range and they had plenty of food and all that kind of stuff. Like just how amazing would that be? And to like to bring the apex predator back, like holy shit yeah, dude like yeah. there is nothing more apex in <laughs> the americas than a goddamn jaguar like there is nothing more apex than that like like what like, like wolves i mean yeah no no offense uh, i mean no, maybe I mean maybe there's nothing more like apex in the warm parts how about that in the warm habitats you know i i always yeah. just think of grizzly yeah, bears and i'm like uh you know, Chris, <laughs> I've hiked in enough yeah, places. Yeah, their habitats don't overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, in 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 the areas they inhabit, yeah. I mean, they're the they're they're the big guys. That's a, that's a serious yeah, animal. They, they king. So what? They what, are king. In in this incredible drama of you know the extirpation and potential reestablishment of this totally, you know, I think to American eyes, very exotic tropical animal what what happened yesterday that is yeah, making you so, you know even um, more fired up than usual yesterday so this amazing insanely detailed petition that was written by the cbd yeah. oh sorry oh gin and tonic um <laughs> that was written by the cbd 
Um, and submitted, and I mean, and this thing is detailed. And submitted to, let me pull up the press release. Um, and submitted to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service this like very detailed explaining how, why, where, when, all the whatever about reintroducing jaguars. So I think more taking more of a proactive wow um, approach We're about moving to, cats. Yeah, I'm assuming he does. I have it. I fully read sure. it to sure. be 100 percent um Like I don't, I don't want to like say things that I don't quite know in it, but uh, this petition that I said is 116 pages that is insanely in-depth you know talking about how and why jaguars should be placed where they say with hard science and everything was rejected by the by fish. the U.S. Fish and Life okay. like just like boop. yeah yeah like, nope and um let me pull up the press release here uh let me see if there's something that I should this is heartbreaking example of Fish and Wildlife Service continued failure to take proactive steps to bring jaguars back to the native Oof. range, says Lakin Jordal, Southwest Conservation Advocate at the Center for Biodiversity. Yeah, not, uh, not mincing words, these guys. Yeah, oh yeah, they're just like, <laughs> F you. They're like, federal officials, oh. and this is a quote, federal officials should be aiding jaguar recovery, not making excuses that justify their continued inaction. Mm. Jaguars belong in the United States, and we won't stop fighting to protect and recover these magnificent cats. In the letter to the center received this week, the Fish and Wildlife Service said, quote, recovery of the species could be achieved without the presence of jaguars in the Gila National Forest. Oh, so there's one particular um, place that they're... Yeah, apparently so. This rationale ignores numerous jaguar experts who authored a groundbreaking paper that I just ah, okay. told you what it was. Yeah. Declaring 20 million acres in Arizona and New Mexico, including the Gila National Forest, suitable habitat for a breeding population of jaguars. Okay, so I wonder. So th those those um, those habitat suitability analyses, <laughs> as we call them in the nerd business, those those are typically based <laughs> around. You know, I mean, you know, they can pick what their criteria are to select areas, and I'd be interested to see what it was they picked. Um, you know, if I were in their position, I'd probably also want to pick like people don't keep cattle in this place, right? Because even if the habitat's great, if they're going to, you know, I guarantee you if, if one sheep or cow gets killed, then suddenly you're going to be dealing with the whole rancher population, you know, um, that's, that's Absolutely. the really tragic and part. And that's like the biggest, yeah. Yeah, if there's one slip it. up by one individual animal, suddenly they're all demonized to you know the nth degree. Um, so I wonder how I wonder how they treated that. Um, it would be really interesting to see. I can definitely. I mean, obviously, all these, all eighteen, nineteen, twenty, whatever things I read, I'll definitely have in the show notes. But I'll specifically send you this because I mean the methods. <laughs> It's way too long for me to even think about reading this and giving you a summary in like a oh sure yeah of course manner. of course um, but I mean yeah but like considering the names that were on this paper I'm sure they did their due diligence but I didn't have a chance to fully read it because again it's just it's just crazy that I picked this topic and then yesterday night Man. like evening yeah that's when it went this, down the rejection this press release dropped and then in that press release. Re quoted this paper that it was based off of and I found the petition Dang. 
that they originally submitted to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So I was like, holy shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is happening right now. So, yeah, apparently Jaguars, Jaguars in the United States is, like, filled with, like, controversy and, like, lawsuits and, like, massive public outcry both ways. Like, we need to be bringing them back and then a strong opposition against them. Um, yeah, I didn't expect to uncover so much drama in my into the headlines idea. <laughs> It sounds like you got yourself a whole like mini series there. Like that's a that's a saga, yeah. you know. Yeah. And we've like scratched the surface. Yeah. yeah, I was just so happy because you know I was in Brazil and got to see all the jaguars there, and I interviewed a lot of people there, and like getting ready to produce a podcast series about uh, conservation of that area, like all you know since um, the jaguars pretty much the keystone species there mm. in, in that whole area. That, that, that's like the center theme of the whole thing. And so I have a peaked interest, of course, of anything Big Cat related. And then just to go into this, like, what? I did not. I, 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 didn't. <laughs> I learned a lot. Yeah. I mean, I just like, did too. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that is the saga. I think there's no other way to call it about... Um, jaguars in the United States. And as I get more updates, um, I'll definitely share them uh, throughout the show and anything that I see or hear. But yeah, again, like I said, I'll have all of the links to this in the show notes if anybody else wants to nerd out and see what details I missed or um, read on or read the petition or you know read this beautiful scientific paper. Like by all means, it'll be all there. Um, but that is what I've been able to uncover in, like, 72 hours. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't sleep during that time either, right? You were just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was my topic. Okay. Uh, well, I um, will readily admit that I did not do nearly as much... Uh, uh, well, you weren't supposed no, to. This was accidental. Uh, like, you just, it was supposed to be a lighthearted. Oh, did you see this? No, no, no. Brooke, and then I just was like, 1963, the last female was shot. Like, Brooke, one, one, does not, one does not stumble into 17 tabs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> this, and I'm not, you know, I right. listen, you've got the, you know, you've got the, um, the Sherlock Holmes vibe going on right now. And like, I respect it. Oh, I feel like I it. I see the game. I respect it. You know, it's, yeah, um, I feel like I'm Sherlock Holmes. Doesn't he have like a cute English bulldog or something? Does my cat, uh, pass oh, absolutely. Your cat is delightful. I miss your cat. Okay. <laughs> She's asleep right I've, here. Uh, beside me. I've met her once <laughs> and I, I miss like what an amazing yeah. animal. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, that aside, um, I found I found two um, kind of newsy things, and I kind of picked them. Well, I picked them because they're 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 both you know around topics that are close to my heart, but they're also on very different sides of what we you know talk about on this show. So one Ooh, of them is a lot. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Well, so one of them is a lot more you know people and conservation and stuff. And then the other one is a lot more like nature nerd, just just cool nature it. stuff, right? Um, so I'll <laughs> I'll go through them both. Uh, yeah, let me start with the people one. Yeah, 
I'll start okay. with people one. Okay. Um, and I have not done enough research on it, and it seems like it's a recent enough thing that maybe no one, you know, except for the people doing it, know much of what's going on yet. Um, but um, I was I was reading uh, uh, through just a bunch of conservation headlines at your at your recommendation from our dumpster fire of a text conversation, um, which is how good episodes start is just like. Ridiculous conversation. <laughs> um, and, I, and I found one that I really liked. I'm just going to read the headline itself. Um, first ever U.S. indigenous marine stewardship area declared in California. And I was immediately like, Whoa. I was like, what is an indigenous marine stewardship area? I mean, I could put the pieces What's together. The um, Manga Bay. Like, who's this by? Um, oh, I love Manga they Bay. They do. I'm- I read almost every every one of their articles. Yeah, I, so I've I've interacted with a few of their journalists before on conservation topics. Oh, really? Yeah, there was one on like, what was it? Maybe wetland conservation or something. That mm. I provided some some commentary for a couple articles um, with one really nice uh, journalist there. I can't remember her name, but we're like friends on Twitter and stuff now. She's great, <laughs> um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so so basically, uh, what what kind of happened here is is several different indigenous nations uh, from the the kind of Pacific Northwest. So we're talking like North California coast up to like most of the Oregon coast, I believe. Um, the Taloa Dene Nation, the Rezagini Rancheria, and the Chur A Heights Indian Community. So they all, all of these, all of these nations kind of came together, and and they, you know, by their own right and authority, designated this this IMSA, this Indigenous Marine Stewardship Area. The idea being like the estuaries and coastal zones of this part of the country are, you know, not only their cultural heritage but these are places that you know have really direct not just spiritual relevance right but like economic and like personal health you know relevance to their society to be able to keep harvesting the species that they've been harvesting for thousands of years and and, and continue you know with those traditions and, and and manage their resources for themselves so that's first of all that's just Totally sweet, frankly. I mean, that's that's, that's awesome. Amazing. It's it's just it's it's exciting to see something like that happen. Any new protected area, I am like generally pretty excited about. Um, but you know, protected areas in that form of conservation have a bit of a checkered past. I, I know you've touched on it before on the podcast. Like sometimes it's a bunch of white people showing up someplace and being like, "You can't use this anymore," and then a bunch of people who live there being like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Um, you know, in this case. We know that the the local the local stakeholders the local local communities the ones most invested in that land who have been there for generations beyond memory those are the people designated this this time so this is a very different mechanism for this going on um, so that's cool as it is um, the other thing that I thought thought was totally sweet about this was that it was the way they're doing it. And I'm still making sense of that, even just from reading this article. I have to find maybe some more detailed information. But basically, like, they just did it. Like, it's not it's not like they went to the huh. U.S. government and were like, oh, can you designate blah, blah, blah. They were like, no, no, it's, it's designated now. And I don't, I don't mean that to imply wow. that they're, like, flippant in any way. I mean, like, this is awesome. It's like they're literally exerting their, like, sovereign nation, you know. And I'm not a lawyer. I don't know 
They said F the red tape. Yeah, like literally like, like, like the article says, this. as sovereign nations, the tribes say that they are not seeking state or federal agencies' permission to assert their tribally-led stewardship rights and responsibilities. Rather, they want to establish cooperative relationships recognizing their inherent indigenous governance authority, which is super sweet. Yeah, so, I mean, among among the kind of key cultural species that they're trying to keep track of, there was mention of um, a smelt called the surf smelt, um, which actually, they're really interesting little little fish, the various smelts. Um, but they have this whole plan, right, for catching them and, and keeping track of their numbers across time, which is really neat. Um, and and what I did notice also in the article is that when they were talking to experts from these tribes, they're, they're, they're you know, wildlife scientists and things like that, they were really taking a lot of inspiration from indigenous people in other parts of the world, like a lot of the uh, folks in Hawaii, who I actually interact with a lot, um, not so much the, the sea turtle folks that they were referencing, but there, there are a lot of, you know, really strong indigenous conservation groups in Hawaii. And also um, Australia is another big one that they're bringing up. Again, when I was visiting there, you know, our, our conservation conferences, um, had, you know, really tremendous representation and participation of indigenous people, which I thought was amazing. Um, so, yeah, so they, they have declared this area. I really want to see what becomes of this. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm hoping that the, the federal agencies and state agencies will be able to see this as a call to, to collaborate and do something much bigger um, with this area. You know, th- there's increasing interest and kind of momentum in in federal conservation agencies around finding out what the community wants right doing having stakeholder participation in conservation and it can't get any more clear than this <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> when the community's like this is what we want to protect well it's like well shoot then you don't need to do a stakeholder analysis anymore maybe just listen to those people right um, <laughs> so i would be really stoked to see this go well um i really i like the idea uh, and and I, I think that these sort of sovereign actions by these indigenous nations is is so important, um, not only just for, you know, the justice, the historical justice that these people deserve sovereignty over their lands and their lives, uh, but also from a conservation point of view, it is rarely a bad thing when, you know, people from an area get more control. You know, usually a lot of these major conservation impacts are coming from outside, right? It's other people who are standing to benefit uh, ruining a place because they don't have to live there. So. I think this is this is huge. Um, a few more details. Uh, the the area that they're planning is about 700 square miles. Um, there's also a map in the article that has something like 5,000 square miles of California state waters potentially in, uh, included in the IMSA. So I mean, we're talking about a big area with some super intense, you know, valuable ecosystems, which are no doubt under threat you know a lot of coastal and estuarine systems are, are really getting getting hammered by climate change um I, I i think this is this is fantastic for me this is really excellent news it's obviously a huge shame that these that this kind of pronouncement has to be made right that means that these resources are in peril uh but to see folks doing something about it and not waiting necessarily for the slow bureaucracy of federal agencies to do something about it i think is really great that is so cool. Yeah. And immediately, you know, just where my mind goes, since I'm like on this, like the, the application of conservation side of things, like I just immediately hope I'm like, I hope there is some, 
elder or like business savvy person in those tribes that sees the tourism opportunity and like what they could do from like, you know, like a fish guiding business, a rafting business, a canoeing business, a guiding business, a, you know, birding business. There's so many incredible ways they could essentially monetize the nature that they decided to protect. Um, and also help bring in the money to then further protect and just make it even more beautiful, amazing. So that's where my mind immediately goes. So it'd be really cool to see how this develops. And I, I hope that they have that in mind or somebody that is they know and trust is giving them that advice too. Because I'll just imagine if like you could go out with you know, a tribes member from one of these and they could take you fishing if you re like can you imagine if somebody just like that is like what they love more than anything. Like, can you imagine going out with like an indigenous person here and like learning about the fish from their perspective, like on a fishing trip? Could there be anything more moving than that? If you love fishing or birding or, you know, marine mammal watching, like if there's, you know, if you love seals or whatever yeah. it might be, migratory they got whales. Sea otters out there. I'm sure that goes up the that goes up the coast. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. I really hope they're doing it. It's a beautiful like part of the I would world. love to have a guide. I would love to have a Native American guy oh, sure. and go out there. I would go out of my way to hire that person. Like, like way out of my yeah. way. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you know, we'll keep an eye on it. But I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm excited to see where this goes. I, I think this could be, this could represent the start of something really huge. You know, it would be amazing to see yeah. other other nations being empowered in this way to, 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 to steward their their resources and their and their special places um, on their own, you know, and and to and, mm -hmm. and in the process to to push government actors to do a better job of it. So, um, yeah, I'm oh, stoked on that. Yeah, stay tuned on that. Yeah, one. seriously, wow. I know. Fresh, fresh off the press. Yeah, this is literally this is How also exciting. from yesterday. This this headline. So, um, <laughs> I will be dying to learn more about this as it goes forward. Um, okay, so you know to to think about this in Monty Python terms, and now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> my, second, my second headline was about cicadas. Ooh. Uh, and I actually, yeah, I'm back in Ohio. Tell me all yeah, about cicadas. Uh, I might have to come visit, honestly, depending on how the timing works. Um, but, uh, well, so I, I did not pick one headline on this because this is, this is on a lot of people's minds all of a sudden, which is great, um, maybe. Uh, but there are a lot of headlines <laughs> about how 2024 is going to be the year of the cicadas, people keep saying. And, and this is because uh, there are going to be uh, two simultaneous emergences of uh, periodical cicadas. So two different broods are going to come oh. out at once. Um, and I think there will be some geographical overlap between the two broods as well. So um, for folks who don't know, just a really quick, you know, periodical cicada 101. So cicadas are these really neat, you know, plant-sucking insects. And they live underground for some amount of time during their larval stages. And I think... I think that the food that they eat is not super nutritious, so it takes them a very long time to grow. Um, years. They will literally be living for years, like plugged into a tree root, just drinking uh, 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 fluid. And uh, so we have what are called annual cicadas. And if you live in an area that has cicadas, which is like a lot of the planet, um, 
usually they come out in the summertime. The adults emerge from the ground. They uh, uh, they metamorphose into their adult form, and then they fly around and they make loud noise. The males make loud noises in the trees, and they find each other and they mate. They make babies, and then the, the babies drop down and go underground, and it starts the cycle again. These annual species. You know, the, the individuals that come out every year are always like three or four or six years old. It's just that because they come out every year, there's another generation every year of six-year-olds or five-year-olds or whatever it is that comes out, right? Um, so even though they come out every year, it's not like they complete their life cycle in a year. Mm-hmm. These periodical ones have a slightly different life history where they will spend a really long time underground. Um, and they will spend prime number amounts of time underground so 17 <laughs> years 13 years you know whatever it is um but the big difference is instead of like coming out every year right and there's like there's there's that delay of six years but there's always another generation because they're all staggered so they come out every year instead of that these ones all go at once so every 13 years they all come out they all scream they all breed They all die, and then all the babies go underground, and then 13 years later, they all come up again, right? Um, And 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 they they there's kind of there's a whole bunch of neat evolutionary ecology about it, but essentially their sort of strategy is there are so freaking many of us that the predators can't handle it, so enough of us survive every time to come back next time. But their whole biology is based around the fact that there are just bajillions of them. Um, and to get into the you know the actual numbers, these broods can, can be billions of individuals coming out all at once over the course of, what, three to six weeks, something like that. They don't live super long. Um, so uh, there are different broods within species, which are like these you know recurring intervals of they come out every 17 years. And a lot of them are offset from each other so we don't get, you know, periodical skids every year. But every, like, you know, three to four to seven years, like, some brood somewhere in the country is going off. And you can go there and see crazy cicada action. I mean, just everything covered in cicadas. I've seen one in my life, <laughs> yeah. which was 2021. 20, I went to go visit Bob from the Nature Guys in Cincinnati mm-hmm. during the Brood 10 emergence, which I thought... Oh, that was several different species of cicadas. Um, and, and I mean, it was insane. Every, every tree, everything was just covered in cicadas. It was totally nuts. Um, it was awesome. Um, this year, there are two different broods, brood 19 and brood 13. Um, brood 19 has the nickname the Great Southern Brood, which sounds very promising. Um, the two of them are going to be coming out at <laughs> once, probably, I'm guessing, like May, June or something like that. Um, and they're going to, you know, be all over a bunch of the central U.S. And in the places where the two broods overlap, it is going to be pandemonium. I mean, it is going to be <laughs> so many bugs. Um, so I'm just really stoked on that. I'm, I'm looking up right now where the, some of the locations are. Um, so brood 19 which is the Great Southern Brood. It's going to be Nashville, Tennessee, Charlotte, North Carolina, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, brood 13 is going to be hitting Eastern Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Southern Wisconsin. Wow. 
Um, yeah, so Chicago is the biggest city that it'll be happening near. Um, and then both of them are in a whole are going to be overlapped in areas in Illinois. It looks like that might be it. So Illinois might be the epicenter. I got to go make some more friends in that area. <laughs> <laughs> go get some deep dish and go find some cicadas. Yeah, I have heard. I have heard that you can put these cicadas on a pizza and that it's quite nice. And I'm not, you know, I, I don't think of eating animals when I first meet any kind of wildlife, but that could be pretty neat. And, you know, if there are billions of them, what's... Sounds crunchy. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. I mean, bugs bugs can be delicious. I really, you know, I'm not hating on them. Can't say I've had too many voluntarily ah. or willingly. Yeah, you should try some. I... I went to an entomophagy conference many years ago, um, <laughs> and it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, you need some bugs, you know? <laughs> a lot of them taste like bacon. It's weird, but they do. Crunchy, crunchy, crunchy bacon with legs. <clears throat> you went to an entomophagy conference. Entomophagy. Sorry, I am, I am laughing at you. <laughs> I have it coming. I usually do. Um, so that's all I got is this year is going to be crazy for cicadas and, you know, really hopeful, exciting stuff happening on the West coast that I hope happens elsewhere. Yeah, that's so, oh, that's so freaking cool. Yeah. Cause I guess the talk here is already happening about the cicadas and I grew up in very rural place and surrounded by woods on, in a log cabin. And I remember when the cicadas would come out, we would, they would have their exoskeletons all over oh, yeah. mm-hmm. like our house. Mm-hmm. And I remember playing with them as like a little girl and like trying to bat them off as off the house and like onto the ground and stuff and in the trees and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And those were those were periodical. Did you did you run into? Uh... Oh, I have no. Oh, there was one time um, we were actually just talking about this. How funny! There was like one particular bloom of them that I remember as a little girl that was out of this world. So I'm 32 now, so it must have been like a 17 or 13 or something like that. Sure. Like a massive one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like it being, because like you said, they are annual. So there were there was cicadas every year, especially when it got really hot. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. Hot summers. Yeah. And, and, and um, the, the annual but there's, ones. there's one particular. For sure. I mean, you'll, you'll see annual yeah, ones yeah, in great but, numbers. If you're in a really, you know, it sounds like you were in a pretty, you know, countryside kind of place. If you're in a place with healthy yeah. healthy forests, <laughs> The annual ones are abundant enough. You know, they will be all over. Yes. I mean, even just like in Athens, Georgia, where I am, you know, we have like six or seven different species of annual cicadas. And like they're freaking everywhere by late summer. And <laughs> and, and that is still nothing compared to, you know, these these mass emergence broods. I mean, we're talking like the roads are paved with them. <laughs> like Oh Every my God, that crazy? In them. Oh, it's nuts. It's, and Brood X, I think, wasn't even that big. You know, even in Cincinnati, it was like, okay, yeah, it's a lot of cicadas. But like, this is like biblical stuff, you know, like blotting <laughs> out the sun and you can't hear anything over it. I mean, it's Are so Are they cool. only reproducing? Do they actually consume anything? I mean, they're not acting like locusts, right? Like, you know, the actual plague. Like they are, is it just for, like the, that is their reproductive body? Mostly, yeah. So people, um, they do a lot more eating as babies. You are absolutely right, which a lot mm-hmm. of insects do. Mm-hmm. Um, not all, but a lot. Um, 
So people, people, this is where there's a lot of confusion. And I've been trying to clear this up on my blog with a, I have a post about cicada biology and, um, yeah, people call them locusts and that's because of how similar they, you know, their numbers look to the biblical plagues and everything. But yeah, they don't, first of all, they, they don't have chompy mouth parts. So they, they don't chew on stuff and cause that kind of damage. They have a piercing mouth part for, for sucking plant juices, um, yeah, and what I've heard around, across the board from from entomologists is that is that the damage they cause to any kind of trees is is really minimal um, from feeding. The biggest damage that they do is the way that females lay their eggs, and 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 the the females after they've mated will go out to the very tips of a tree's branches. Um, mm-hmm. Which is the you know the, the growing part really, um, and they will they have these little like saw blades in their in their butt, and and they will saw into the wood with their butt blades. Uh, stay with me, <laughs> and <laughs> and then with the little hole they they saw it into the branch. They'll put a couple eggs in there. Maybe one, maybe more. And then they'll move a couple inches and they'll do it again. So it's probably one egg per little furrow. But they'll fill a twig, you know, not fill it, but they'll, you know, plant these little little uh, uh, tiny eggs in there. And then that causes the end of the, the, the branch to die. And eventually it breaks off and it falls to the ground. And then the babies oh. hatch and then they crawl underground. Um that's crazy life cycle. It's insane. No, I mean, yeah, it's wild. Um, but I, you know, that that can cause, you know, for like if you have a fruit orchard or something like that, and they happen to go after, mm. you know, your apple trees and and cut a bunch of the tips off of the branches, I could see that being harmful. I don't think they go after apples and stuff very often. Um, they do they do go for a lot of different trees, but um, but yeah, so so no, I would, you know, I, I'm hearing a lot of people panicking about these bugs and saying that they're going to ruin crops and cause food shortages they're not going to eat anybody's wheat they're not going to touch soy or (laughs) corn or oats or anything even the trees it's going to be like eh, like did they really do any damage Mm." so (laughs) yeah there's nothing to be afraid of you know but it it, it, it's it is crazy i mean it, it you know if you're afraid of bugs maybe then then that's a you know Maybe you don't want to be around. If there's an actual phobia involved, yeah, 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 because it is a you know, I love being around insects, and I was in the forests around Cincinnati, and I was like, this is totally insane. I was just walking around like, (laughs) this is a staggering number of insects, just everywhere. That was just my summer growing up, just (laughs) Just everyday life. Yeah, and how you knew it was really hot by how well one. How early the cicadas started oh, man. their songs. That's how you knew it was going to be a brutal day. Uh, and then, yeah, and then how hot it got. You're just like, fuck. Brutal. <laughs> like, yeah, you're making it's me. It's 6.30. The cicadas are already going. Yeah. You're like, oh, no. Like, this is going to be a day. <laughs> you're, you're giving me visions of just, like, steamy, swamp, Georgia summers that, like, I, I've yeah. had I've had two and a half summers here now, and I just oh it's so by like August it's just so miserable. <laughs> it's just like just cicadas screaming and like 
you know, it cools down to 85 at night, and you're just like, oh. It's, yeah. Wait, where where was it that you grew up? Southern Ohio. Southern Ohio. And the okay. Appalachians, where they start. Okay. Where the Appalachians start. Okay. Is that... So you're, like, close to Kentucky, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Culturally speaking... Uh, it's very Kentucky. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think of the ecosystem, it's very similar. But actually, quite interestingly, I grew up right where the big ice sheets came through. So you can see where like half of my county is flat. The other half is starts the Appalachians. Oh, so wow. like you can see like depending on which like... um. Like we had, like um, my, my school had one of the worst cross country courses because it was all hills, and then it was amazing when we go to like Uniona or Adina or something like that because it was all flat. <laughs> it was all fun. It was right. all like super super flat. You guys are sprinting um, up and down hills all the time. Yeah, but us like the entire thing was hills. But it, that we're all in the same conference, all in the same county. So like, pretty like just from a geological standpoint, that is like pretty cool to grow up on that is neat so you were you were then you guys were like basically where the glaciers stopped yeah cool. right on the edge wow mm-hmm. that's really neat yeah because a lot of people think of ohio as just like indiana or illinois and it being super flat yeah but part of it is but nobody knows about the other part because no one goes there <laughs> <laughs> i i have no, i am guilty of that i have seen so little of you have ohio. no reason well, you have- <laughs> You go to Cincinnati. I got a lot of friends in various parts of Ohio. I just haven't like gone to hang out. You know, I got I got to do that. I got a bunch of buddies in Toledo. Like, I got to get out there. I'm overdue. Oh, that's flat. That's speaking of the ice yeah. sheets. That's yeah, yeah. Neat part. Of that's the like the northwestern corner. That's like yeah. That like sounds right. Okay. Know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Pretty flat up there. <laughs> <laughs> all right what, well we did yeah you got any you got any more uh, uh news for me or are you, you feeling you feeling newsed out we did pretty well I over here i think yeah okay so we had a news headline that spanned i mean how many decades since the 1960s oh, yeah. then we had a very recent one that launched yesterday and then straight up just nerdy awesome cicada natural history stuff I feel like that covers a lot of bases. That's I awesome. think so. We got a little something for everybody. <laughs> a little something, something. A little something, something. <laughs> uh, well, all right, Charles. Thanks again for sitting down with me for a fantastic nature happy hour chat number two. Number, number two. Dose. We got through two. Yes. We we made it, everyone. Woo! This is great, and thank yes. you. It's I mean, it, it's always a pleasure, but um, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you know. We'll we'll help you work on your uh, organic improv, uh, <laughs> untype a yourself a little bit. You know, we'll we'll see if we can keep it to like Good fifteen luck. tabs next time. But uh, Good luck. I, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what I do. Yeah, yeah. Progress was made. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Chat soon, dude. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this wild adventure today. I hope you've been inspired by the incredible stories, insights, and knowledge shared in this episode. To learn more about what you heard, be sure to check out the show notes at rewildology.com. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to stay connected with the Rewildology community, hit that subscribe button and rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. I read every comment left across the show's platforms and your feedback truly does mean the world to me. Also, please follow the show on your favorite social media app. Join the Rewildology's Facebook group and sign up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter. In the newsletter, I share recent episodes, the latest conservation news, opportunities from across the field, and updates from past guests. If you're feeling inspired and would like to make a financial contribution to the show, head on over to rewildology.com and donate directly to the show through PayPal or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. Remember, rewilding isn't just a concept, it's a call to action. Whether it's supporting a local conservation project, reducing your own impact, or simply sharing the knowledge you've gained today, you have the power to make a difference. A big thank you to the guests that come onto the show and share their knowledge with all of us, and to all of you, Rewildology listeners, for making the show everything it is today. This is Brooke signing off. Remember, together we will rewild the planet.